Right. So listeners <laughs> should should know. I mean, this is worth talking about because it's actually really funny. At two o'clock, I left for Reckless. So this is the Reckless 100K Celebration Day. And you actually referenced it, Mike, during your, your comedy monologue about me not taking calls. Oh, you'd never forgive me and this and that. So wouldn't you know it, the second I leave for the show, like within five minutes, two calls come in and then there's a third. It was just, oh, head slapping moment. Like, are you kidding me? But it's... You missed all the action stuff. Yeah, it was like FOMO for sure. But it, it, you know, for me, it reinforced the fact that we are all volunteers and we cannot do this 100% of the time you do what you can and you help out as much as you can and everybody is appreciated for it and everybody deserves a day off I mean I think it's important for rescuers and EMT people and you know first responders to to have that outlet or whatever your hobby just to be healthy and normal and you know you cannot live this stuff 24-7 it'll kill you yeah yeah definitely yeah um, yeah. And then just moving on, like the third one that you were talking about on September 11th, um, fishing game received a nine one one call at two o'clock. Um, there was an injured hiker on the Gorge Brook trail on Mount Musalaki in Benton. For now on, when I talk about Musalaki, I'm going to, I'm going to switch it up and say Musalak and then Musalaki. <laughs> so that way I can't get any garbage from anyone. Cause I say it both ways. Um, <laughs> clever. studio in the great state of new hampshire welcome to the sounds like a search and rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the white mountains of new hampshire here are your hosts mike and stump and i'm live stump you're back episode 75 i'm back where you been Last few weeks were nuts, right? They were, they were. I'm still yeah. like, I needed a week to recover from the anxiety of like a live show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Same here. Yeah, I think it worked out pretty well. I've actually having my little sweaty hands and little uh, thumb drive full of the video that folks captured. So once I have some time, I'm gonna see if I can't marry that audio to that video. It might be interesting. I'm not sure if it would work because I did edit that audio just a little bit here and there but not much yeah give it a shot see if you can uh, pull some clips we'll share with the audience yeah Yeah, that's a good call actually but it was a great time for sure i want to thank everybody again for coming out we're back in the saddle again and uh yeah i was really pleased with that and you did a great job too mike Um, i mean the stand-up comedy routine was hilarious actually Yeah, the, the the goal was to be so bad that it was funny, so I don't yeah, know. It, it worked. Just the way you finished it off, too, like, this is how it felt exactly then at that comedy club. 
It's, it I do. Really good. Yeah, I remember like watching some of the comedians. Like, so I worked at I worked at this place called Giggles Comedy Club for like ten years, and it was it was owned <laughs> by if you know Lenny Clark, like my, oh, sure. Lenny Clark's brother Mike Clark. So Lenny Clark was in something about Mary. He was like one of the firefighters with Steve Sweeney in the scene where yeah. he zips his his pants into his um his nether regions and they have to pull uh-huh. them out of the, the, so that's Lenny Clark. So <laughs> he, he, they would get good comedians in there. Like Joe Rogan was in there and they sure, had like sure. a, a bunch of people, but people would test things out. And sometimes you would, you'd catch a set and the comedians would absolutely just bomb. And it's a hard, you know, so I know talent. what that feels like. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of skill. It's uh, I, I really pr- appreciate it, especially listening to Rogan. He talks, quite a bit about his bits and how it works and the whole process is very very awesome yeah you know yeah almost have to like memorize like i was reading everything off a of script which is what i do um yeah. i couldn't memorize that off the top of my head but like just getting the cadence down on stand-up comedy i don't know how they do it but anyway i try yeah, but i think stuff. live shows i'm good to do that maybe once a year but the anxiety level is just through the roof for me oh yeah i think now that we've done it I think, you know, there's no reason to do it again unless there was some amazing reason to. But, I mean, 100K was certainly memorable. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> let's just get back to doing the old standard shows and have a good time. Yeah, so thanks for listening, everybody. So, um, happy fall. So, the fall is coming. It's it's getting colder out at night. Anything you want to talk about in relation to the fall? I know we're going to cover something deeper later, but any initial thoughts? Well, I mean, it may be an earlier winter season than expected. I mean, you already have rime ice and snow popping up on Mount Washington, and we've had several nights up here. Uh, we had to bring the plants in already because we're hitting the low 30s, and we've, we haven't had a frost yet, so um, that's a good thing. But, yeah, it's changing quick. It, it's amazing how it changes so fast come Labor Day. Yeah. Do you know, like, I don't have any basis for knowing this, but like I hear, I hear people say this and they're like, well, it was a dry summer. So that means that we're going to have like less color and it's going to be coming earlier. Like, I don't know. I like, what is talking to somebody What is moisture that. level? What is that? Do you know anything about that? I don't know anything about it. It's something to that effect. Um, last year, if I remember correctly, was sort of dull and I, I honestly can't remember. And on the way home today, I was talking to my friend saying do you recall what it what, what it is i i'm at, honestly at a loss i don't quite remember either it was i mean we're getting color change now at the high summits above like two above 2k roughly you're starting to see change and to me it looks a little flat and i don't know if we've had a significant i mean it was a hot dry summer um but it may have you know this rain that we've had lately may be a little too late to save the day yeah i think it matters too like when you get into a trail and you're like in the trees and you find one of those trails that has like a nice straight you know like a 500 foot like straight section and you can see down kind of like like when we were walking down livermore and you've got that sort of straight view like that to me is always the coolest way to look at foliage is like you're completely immersed in it and you're like a tunnel Mm -hmm. so i almost like the having it look dull from being up on a peak is one thing, but I think when you're inside there, regardless of like whether or not it's a dull season or not, like you can still really get that, that feeling of, of, um, 
foliage. And I, I like that. I like being immersed in it instead of like just looking at it from above. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing you have to consider, the uh, leaves falling and slippery trails. So that's coming soon. <laughs> uh, we're on the cusp of Columbus Day weekend too, which is the big leaf peeper season. Um, so just be careful out there. I'm definitely ready to put all my winter stuff in my truck, uh, except for the snowshoes, obviously. But for the the, the clothing, it's definitely time. And um, one last thing here. I'm looking at our previous episodes, and I see episode 42 was snowshoes. I can't find our... Oh, oh episode 32 and episode 33 were the intro to winter. So if you guys want to check that out again, I think those are really informative, just getting ready for uh, what's coming our way soon. Yeah, and we're going to do a rehash of like um, winter hiking too. So sure. we'll we'll probably pick the best and uh, maybe see if Rebecca or Karen wants to come back on. It's been a while. Hey, this isn't on um, the script, but I remember you recently covered the whole um, uh, GPS thing. Not GPS, but the, the service that's coming uh, through yes. the phones, the Androids. Mm-hmm. Did you hear about Starlink and T-Mobile hooking up recently? Yeah, that was part. That was actually part of the show. I covered that on the show um, a little bit towards the end. So it's yeah. There's a couple of satellite providers, and yeah, it looks like um, the orig- so Apple is connected with another satellite company to do this emergency SOS. Yeah, um, where there's no cell connectivity, and then T-Mobile is partnering with Starlink to provide Wi-Fi when there's where there's dead dead zone. So it sounds gotcha. like the T-Mobile offering will be a little bit more comprehensive and for probably texting. a better yeah, better service for um for people overall, but the thing I don't know about is Starlink has a capacity issue in yeah. their specific zone, so like there's certain areas where they won't sell satellite receivers because they've hit their limit yeah. on the regional capacity so i don't know whether or not that matters my understanding about t-mobile is that with the new satellites being sent up those are going to have new antenna technology that's going to be embedded into the t-mobile phone so i don't know if coverage for t-mobile is going to match what currently exists for starlink or whether they have to build that up in the future huh. yeah it's interesting it was definitely like emphasizing the fact that you'd be able to get text regardless but yeah yeah exactly and i think elon musk had had been interviewed and he was like we're talking with apple as well around collaboration so i think t-mobile is probably the first eventually my guess is that starlink once they get their network up and running completely will likely be sort of like the third option so you'll be like access to wi-fi from home access to cell towers when you're out and about and then when you're in rural areas the, the next step will be satellite connectivity Mm-hmm. Cool. So, it's Brave cool world. future we're looking for here, Stomp. Yeah. And next up here, we've got a write-up for Larson. So he got a little press on Go East. You want to talk about that? Yeah. EMS uh, interviewed him shortly after the Skyline fastest known time, and these. Uh, this was by Ryan uh, Wilchins, who we had on as a guest, if I remember correctly. And uh, yeah, that just talks about the whole experience, the ups and downs, and uh, we, we will provide a link for sure so you can check it out. Um, it's it's fairly brief, but it's still pretty cool. It's nice that uh, they're giving some of these folks 
props for their accomplishments. Go Larson. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And then next we have New Hampshire Air National Guard has a new SAR team. What is this all about? Isn't that great? So, you know, the Black Hawk crew, Air National Guard, they're all volunteers and um, they give their time extensively for missions and whatnot. But over the last, uh, I think I think it was about the last year or so, they've been working on establishing their own uh, boot level on the ground team to respond to missions uh, down south, uh, southern New Hampshire, more or less. So mm-hmm. it's VSAR, it's uh, Volunteer Search and Rescue, that's their name, so VSAR. And uh, again, we'll give you the link, but there's a nice video that they've provided with Lieutenant Neeland, and um, it just goes into what they've been up to. Um, very cool. I, I From uh, the training that we had on September 10th, I guess there's a there was a funny moment. They were talking about the color of shirts that they were going to wear. You know, all these teams have different colors. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess they're leaning towards like a pink, <laughs> which is cool because Lieutenant Nealon basically told them, oh, you guys can pull it off for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. That's good. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't love the name. I feel like they should be SNH SAR. I don't, yeah, who knows? Yeah, that's a long, long word though. SNH. I, I like VSAR. Yeah, I guess it's, I'm just used to SNHU, so SNHSAR would be it's sure it flow. I yeah. wonder if it's partly because they just don't want to have any notoriety and they want to distance themselves from anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that uh, makes sense. I guess. Yeah. All right, and then stop. I see here in the notes we've got a a new rock slide. Where, where is this? Well, if you remember the two individuals that got fined recently for getting stuck up on the hound's hump of Eagle Crag. I we, we were just up there last um, Friday night for a qualifying hike for, for some new members. And sure enough, I look over and um, there is a massive exfoliation, probably the size of, I don't know, a 60, you know, two, three deckers stacked on top of each other that peeled off of the side of Eagle Cliff, essentially. Really? It looks, it stands out because you have the, the sort of the granite and then it gets very bright and tannish where this uh, slab peeled off. But what happened was it took out all the trees um, straight down, in my opinion, I haven't gone into explore, but straight down to approximately where Greenleaf Trail is. It's unbelievable. So in, in relation field. to in relation to the climber trail to get up to the watcher, yep. if you're looking at the eaglet right right as you get to that climber trail, are you talking about the slide is off to the left? Yes. Or is it in okay. It's off to the left. If you go so in not easy the, to get to. Easier than you think because there are climber trails all over that area that go up there. Okay. Um and it's it's pretty frightening to think that we had members up there. Um, for that rescue, literally right there, standing in the vicinity of that area. So it really puts a little more context to the risk that some of the volunteers put themselves into. Because that that could let at any time. Um, but if anybody drives by, and Mike, if you're in the area, you got to see this. It's freaking massive. It's so massive. 
Yeah, I'll check it out. I was on, I was when we were driving up to Reckless. I was like pointing out the watcher to my wife. Yeah. Um, and she was like, "Oh my god, I can totally see it." So you can't see it from the road. It's just <laughs> sure not easy. You have to kind of know where to look. Yeah, you can't miss this one. It's just huge. Okay. All right, I'll check it out. Uh, so pop culture talk stomp. You've got a new show for me. What is this all about? Well, it's not new. We talked about Love is Blind where the, uh, these single people go into, uh, well, actually, they're, they're couples that separate and then they go into this pod to talk to other people and then they, you know, they eventually see the other person after you know, X amount of days talking to them without seeing what they look like and everything else. But there's another variation up there now and it's after the altar. So it's like a year later after the, uh, the series ended just recently. So you might dig it. It's pretty, pretty crazy. Wait a minute. Is this the show where they're like, they talk to it, they're in the dark, right? They talk to it, each other in, in complete darkness? Nope. No, they're, they're in like pods and there's like a, 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 sh- a sheer uh, blind okay. in the way. So you can hear the person, but you can't see them. Okay. And um, yeah, it's just, it's sort of interesting, but uh, you might want to check it out. We watched it uh, just the other day. It was, it was pretty good. <laughs> All right, yeah, I'll check it out. I've I've been I'm busy with Cobra Kai. I'm watching the Karate Kid season uh, five, yeah, yeah, yeah. loving that. And I'm also busy with um, House of the Dragons. And I've kind of gone away from the Lord of the Rings thing. I've like put that. Oh, you put it to bed. Like I'll binge that at some point. I just I'm, I don't know what's happening. I'm very confused. But House of the Dragons, amazing. Great. We're through episode five. We're getting ready to do the time jump. Uh, yeah, Kristen Cole and Rhaenyra have sort of like. That arc is going to be critical into the future, but like there's everything set up now. Now we got the time jump and it's going to start getting crazy. Yeah. Great job so far. Really happy with Queen it. Alice, yep, Queen Alicent has decided like, okay, I'm going to fight this, this situation with Rhaenyra. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's basically the key relationship is Alicent and Rhaenyra. So keep an eye out for that. It's great. I love the casting, the king. The king is fantastic. I love his acting in this. And of course, uh, Matt Smith, he, they're all killing it. It's really great. Yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic. And Viserys, yeah, he's his sort of inability to take a stand and realize what's going on around him. And he's just sort of like hoping that like, if he doesn't address problems, they'll just go away. Like he's just, he, they play it perfectly because that's how he's described in the books as well. Okay. It's just like the casting and the way that they've set set this up in the first five episodes is amazing. So I'm hoping that they keep it going. Yeah. And there's really no way that they can mess up like they did Game of Thrones because all the source material is already written and it's super tight. So they just got to follow follow the source material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Yep. Hey, you hear the news about Phantom closing? I did. I did, actually. If you read the article, it's more or less... Because of the money drop, people just aren't going to the theater as much anymore post-COVID. Yeah. So it's really a shame. I mean, oh, how many shows did they do? Something like 13,000. Wait a minute. Oh, see, it's all over the place. But on Broadway alone, it was 13,000 shows to 19 million people. I got to see it. I don't mm. know if you've ever seen it in New York. Um, I have not, and I never had any interest. Yeah, yeah, I went along, not begrudgingly, but I wasn't like absolutely like obsessed with it, but I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was a good experience. So we had a yeah. lot of nice experiences with the kids in New York as they were growing up. Uh, but anywho, 
the curtain closes. Yeah, that's good. I think we're going to see Hamilton. Yeah, I think Hamilton's coming to Boston. I think. Yeah. I think my wife got got tickets for some of us, but yeah. the, my understanding is, yeah, Broadway's hurting. I think that like a lot of people have kind of stayed away. Um, honestly, like New York, I keep hearing all these stories about crime oh, the, and all the this crime. stuff. I'm a little bit like, I don't know if I want to be going to New York at this point. But yep, no question. Um, my understanding is Lion King and Wicked are like the only two shows that are sort of holding up. Yeah. I think, or maybe it's just Lion King and another Disney show. Wicked, Wicked is probably doing okay. That's another decent yeah. show. But yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, who knows? But anyway. Well, good, good luck, Broadway. <laughs> I, I did have a note here about Fortitude. Have you ever seen that series? It's. It, I have not. Okay, just briefly, I, I, I talked Mr. Stomp into watching it. I'm a fanatic about it. It does have uh, Richard Dormer, who was uh, a cast member on Game of Thrones. And it's a really neat psychodrama slash... I don't know if anybody saw Leftovers, but Leftovers was very similar. Um, but really recommended. You have all this crazy stuff going up on top, but underneath there's this dark thread that nobody realizes is happening. Sort of like Game of Thrones, like with the White Watchers and all that stuff. Uh, so anyway, Fortitude, it's super super cool. Oh yeah, Dennis Quaid is in there out. too. So, right. what streaming service is it? Um, we, you know, I have a couple of the DVDs myself, but you can find it on uh, Amazon for rent. Unfortunately, okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll take a look. Yeah, it's good stuff, though. All right, so sponsors and coffee talk, Stomp. Keep it moving. Yeah, let's see. We have Jeff K. and Emily M. donated five coffees, loving the beard. (laughs) That's that's funny. Uh, Jeff, a.k.a. Full Strength Coffee, five. Uh, Jeff went to the show, and uh, thanks for coming, Jeff. I saw Jeff. He did? Did I meet him? He looks like Thanos. You know Thanos, the, the the guy from like Marvel Comics or whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think I met him then. Okay. I don't mean offense to that, but he's like, you can't miss him. He's pretty, pretty cool looking dude out there. Um, but he had a good time too. So Shandy donated five. Thank you, Shandy. Uh, Paul donated 20 and and just wished us uh, congratulations. Stacy Tardiff donated five, and uh, she mentioned that it was for your uh, Gilmore Girls subscription. Uh, oh, nice. You're right. Thanks, Stacy. I appreciate that. <laughs> we have another congrats from Nick Sidla, Sidla, and he donated five, and then Shandy donated three. And uh, thank you for the Sage shout out. That's her dog. Yes, the dog finished the uh, the four thousand footers. Congratulations! Yeah, absolutely. Want to shout out Spinner's Pizza in Andover off of Route ninety three. People are stopping in to support them. Family owned since nineteen ninety four. Number one pizza in the area, and EMS your northeast go to for outdoor gear, guidance, and education, and more since nineteen sixty seven. And uh, a huge plug to at Reckless Brewing, who hosted the one hundred k show. Uh, they've got so much cooking there. I mean, word is out. They're killing it. 15 minutes from Franconi Notch and many 4K footers in less than 10 minutes from the five corners. So after your hike, go check them out. Yeah, Reckless is awesome. Yeah. Like that back that back pint area was like so amazing. Oh, yeah, like I definitely recommend it to anybody that's up there. You got to get there. Yeah, beautiful, right? Absolutely oh, beautiful. Amazing. And I th- all right, Snob. Yeah. 
All right. Well, welcome to episode 75 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. We are back to our normal format. So this week we're going to talk about the numbers. So we spent some time updating our tracking of search and rescue events for 2019, 2020, and 2021. So we can break down some trends and patterns. So everything you ever wanted to know about media reported search and rescue events, we'll break it down. So Um, I'm going to run these by Stomp to get his impressions of trends in the search and rescue in the whites. Plus, we're going to go back in time to 1941, and we're going to talk about uh, the case of Pamela Hollingsworth, who, as a five-year-old, went missing around Mount Shakura for eight days. And this triggered one of the largest search and rescue events in the history of New Hampshire. So we're going to dig into that a little bit, too. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Let's get started. So beer talk, what do you got? Nothing. I'm just having a little, uh, what is it, uh, like a cranberry vodka thing. There was nothing. I actually did have a really cool, I didn't know they made these, but they make a triple IPA. There's The Campton Cupboard is really uh, upping their game, and I found a, a triple that was delicious. It's by that company that makes like uh, Wizard and Metaphor. They have really cool looking um, cans. But um, I, I honestly can't remember the name of the damn brewery, but a triple. Did you know about triple IPAs? I didn't know. I, didn't know. <laughs> I mean, how high are they going to go? <laughs> I can barely handle So I'm drinking a double IPA. So my brother-in-law, from, so I'm, 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 I'm pulling from Rhode Island tonight. So huh. I've got something from Gray Sail Brewing over Rhode Island called Captain's Daughter. And it's a double IPA. My yeah. my lovely brother-in-law, Tommy Twiggs, brought it up this weekend. So I'm, I'm trying to finish these off. But it's a double IPA. It's pretty stiff, but it's good. Hey, nice. Excellent. Gray Sale Brewing. Gray Sale? Yeah. It's got a lady on the front of the ship. Okay. So this would be Corliss Valerian's of the House of Dragons favorite beer. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, recent hike stomp. Anything? Got nothing. I've been doing little just exercise jaunts, but um, last weekend I was spinning tracks for White Mountain Endurance. I got to see uh, South Pond. I've never been there. That was beautiful. And I miss the North that po- Country. That place is pretty cool, huh? It's beautiful. Yeah. The whole area is just awesome. And, you know, just driving by the Percy's. I mean, Mrs. Stump and I are planning to get up there soon before the weather gets really. Uh, cold and whatever else um, and they closed the road to Nash Stream because we want to do Percy again really bad it's just so pretty up there I almost took the right awesome. over the bridge at Stark to go see that prisoner of war camp but it was getting a little late yeah. mm. with the Kilkenny race did they the, the, the people that did the 25 miles so only one direction did they end at South Pond yeah yep uh, they started, I know where they start, what time they started, but I'm not sure where they started. I, I'm assuming they start by the, like that golf course and, and they start at one, go up one, uh, yeah, Star King Trail. I don't, I don't have the details on that, but I could tell you that, um, 5 AM, the 50 went first and then at seven, the 25ers left, um. So that's how that worked out. And I got there at one o'clock in the afternoon. And when I got there at one, the the first winner of the 50 already came in or the tw- 25. 25. 25. 25. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're going back the other direction. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the 25, that's awesome then. So they finish, they can just hang out and swim in South Pond and. and yeah. 
and just chill. Yep. So did you you did you do any swimming there? No, I was busy uh, DJing. So I was yeah. I was just playing music from one. I left around maybe if I remember correctly, maybe eight eight ish. I left. So I was I was jamming out like all day long. It was fun. I bet. Good time. Yeah. Yeah. The um the, and just if you ever want to go for a good hike, like park in that South Pond parking lot, and then especially in the fall, like you can go just hang a right, go up Devil's Hop Yard, which is like just a spur trail. It's kind of like gotcha. a, I I didn't do that part of it, but I've heard it's like a it's like um Mahusic Notch or whatever, but not as not as impressive. But I think it's it's a rock scramble, and then yeah. head up to Rogers Ledge. That Rogers Ledge is like amazing. That's sure, an awesome area. So if you keep on going, does that take you to Unknown Pond? Yeah, exactly. So if yeah, you left from it. South Pond, you basically, you would go um, up to Rogers Ledge and then you go through this like really cool, like there's a, like a, a, a mountain sort of pond area with a bunch of bog bridges. And then eventually you go through this section that has these super tall ferns yeah. and then you come out to Unknown Pond and then head up to the Horn and the Bulge and Cabot and then through the weeks and out to Wombat and Star King. So it's an amazing area. Yeah, Kilkenny's all. We I gotta take you on the traverse one of these days. I would love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we could do that as an overnight if I can carve out some time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll see. Yeah, you know, like Nobby's um, going out this weekend, and uh, I think I have to bail on him. But uh, anywho, yeah, yeah, I gotta I gotta drive my daughter to work this weekend, so I'll be up in Maine on Friday, Saturday, I think. But uh, I gotta come back early, so I can't go. But for me, stop. I did do a hike. I got out early last. Saturday morning, I think, and I went to, got up around 3.30 in the morning, drove up to Edmonds Path. Um, I scored big time. I knew I was going to have a good day because I always stop at the Hooksit um, rest rest area to get gas, and I'll usually grab a Snickers bar and a Gatorade on 93. Yeah. They have this rest area, and like almost every time I go there, they don't have the bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches. Like, they have this, like, hot <laughs> plate area. But every time I go there lately, like, they're like, oh, we haven't. They even got there one time at, like, 6.30, and they were like, oh, we haven't put them out yet. <laughs> so I got to Hooks It at, like, 4.30 in the morning, and they had bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches nice. uh, available. That's so I was like, I know I'm going to, I'm in for a lucky day today. So yeah. I had an awesome day. Yeah, it's a good, good um, meal. Exactly. So Hooks It Toll. Stop and get a bacon, egg, and cheese, a Snickers, and a Gatorade. You're good to go. <laughs> uh, but I get up to Edmonds Path, I don't know, 6.30 in the morning or something. I hit it up. And um, I've never, I hadn't done that like little section between Eisenhower and Monroe Okay. on the AT. So I was like, I'll just, I want to loop that and get that section because I'm trying to like cover the entire Appalachian Trail. It's funny. I was trying so, to follow what you were doing and you were sort of cryptic about him. Like, is he doing a Prezi? <laughs> like, I had no idea what no. you were doing. <laughs> no, no. I just went up Edmonds and then I was like, originally I, I had to get back early because we were going out on Saturday night. So I had to be back early. Um, oh, we were having people over act actually. So I had to cook. So I got on trail around 630 headed up to the junction of Edmonds Path and Crawford Path. And then I was like, maybe I'll go to Eisenhower, but it'll depend on how the timing is. Took a left and I just followed Crawford Path and went up to like Mount Franklin and that like, I've never been on that section. Mm -hmm. So it's like awesome because it's like this flat sort of tableland section when you go between Eisenhower and before you get to Monroe. And then 
I ended up doing the Monroe Loop. So I went to Little Monroe and then I cut over, went to Monroe. And then I realized I was like, oh crap, I need to like go down to Lake of the Clouds so I can loop around to get the rest of Crawford Path that I haven't done before. Yeah. Because I was doing like the red line and tracing stuff. Hmm. So I went down to Lake of the Clouds, had a bathroom break there, and then headed back over. And then I was just chilling out on that section of like Mount Franklin and those little sub peaks. And I stopped and had like breakfast which was a steak and cheese or a a chicken parm sub actually um and i just took my time but the weather was amazing the views were amazing and i was like i got plenty of time i got back to the junction and i was like do i do eisenhower and i looked up there was like 10 people going up there and i was like i don't really want to deal with the crowd so i just headed back down to edmonds gotcha and um so i was heading down edmonds around i don't know 10 o'clock in the morning or so 1030 and it was like absolute mob scene Hmm. dozens and dozens of people wow so i was pretty happy that i i I chose that yeah yeah i had two visitors on the way down though oh really um one i met jonathan so shout out to jonathan he actually recognized me so jonathan's a listener and he was like are you mike and i was like (laughs) yeah and he was like oh my god i listen to the show (laughs) he's telling me he's like oh i just listened to the show on the way up he comes from boston He's just starting to do his 4,000 footers. So we were kind of hanging out talking. I was like trying to dig through my pack to get him a sticker, but I left my sticker in my <laughs> overnight backpack. So I didn't have any. Oh, so that's sorry, funny. Jonathan. Oh, that's funny. Um, well, there you go. Was it the first nice. one that's happened to you? I, yeah, I mean, I've been recognized before for, um, by other people, but like just people I know online, but I'd sure. never really been recognized because of the podcast, which was. Which was cool. You know, it was nice. Jonathan was cool. Good, good guy. Yeah, that's awesome. And, yeah, and then on my way down, too, I ran into Arlette. So Apple Pie, who we've talked about a bunch of times. Right. She just finished the 11 um, National Scenic Park. So um, I was saying hi to her. I hadn't seen her in a while. We've hung out a, a couple of times. Uh, so she was actually guiding for Redline Guiding. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had an, a lady who's super nice. She was, um, she just wanted a hiking companion. So 80-year-old lady who... Um, Arlette was taking up to Eisenhower and they got up top. I saw her on social media, had an awesome day and uh, she was killing it. 80 years old. Wow. Yep. See, yeah. Martin Pazzani nailed it. It's like, it's the yes. elixir of youth. It is, it is. So, hmm. um, but yeah, it was nice to see her and I did hit, I was like, I got to get you on the podcast. So she's like October. She's like, I've been interviewing like constantly and I was like, I get it. I said, I didn't want to bother you yet, but give mm-hmm. her a little bit of time. Yeah, yeah, you and I have to come up with a game plan for the next few months. <laughs> Gotta get some guests. I know. Out. It's like, <laughs> listeners have no idea. We're like winging this week to week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But well, we got some good stuff here. So, um, want to skip the notable hikers and get into some history? Yeah, yeah. I do want to just send a, a shout out to Run Cast Run because she took um, her students. Mount Pemi, and that's super cool getting kids out of the class and doing something oh, yeah. outdoors like that. So nice job. And phew, full strength coffee, Vicky, uh, Miss Vaughn Jazz Hands, I see you and thank you for tagging us. You really appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, we got a long show, so we're going to move on. Run Cass, Teacher of the Year. <laughs> that's right. Along with Karen, along with our friend Karen. Um, <laughs> all right. So um, this is the part where you're going to do time for some White Mountain history. Yeah. Sounds good. (laughs) Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? 
All right, so we're going to go back to 1941, Stomp. How old were you in 1941? 1941, I was negative. You were negative? Are you sure about that? (laughs) Yeah, I was definitely negative. (laughs) Okay. 1941? Um, 1941. You have a, what is this, a search or something or... Yeah, so this um this I wanted to cover the story of Pamela Hollingsworth who is a 5-year-old girl who was visiting New Hampshire so their family from Lowell. Mm-hmm. Lowell, Massachusetts okay. or Dunstable, which I guess is like pretty close to Lowell. So, uh families from Lowell, um from father, mother, 5-year-old daughter and then I think a slightly older brother. So they were uh, heading up to New Hampshire. They were staying near White Le- or, or White Ledge campground, mm-hmm. which is that campground where it's right past Mount Shakora. If you're ever hiking like um, Carter Ledge Trail, you can get in from that direction there. There's a few spots in the campground. Okay. Um, and then it's it's right next to this little pond called Iona Pond or Iona Lake. Yeah. So um, they were spending the day near the lake on the other side of the road from the campground. I guess the, the little girl and brother were off exploring and doing their thing and they'd come back earlier, went back out to mess around. And sure enough, like the, the brother who, like older brothers tend to be, it was like an asshole, left his five-year-old sister back and she ended up wandering off and went missing. Hmm. So they're, so just to set sort of the geography here, they're at the White Ledge campground area, very close to Route 16, um, sort of on the north northern side of Mount Chikora. And, you know, the father is obviously frantic. He's leading a search crew. So this end, this search ended up going eight days, eight days total. That's amazing. Um, the weather was like, it was around, it was starting to get, you know, it was freezing weather overnight. Yeah. So, you know, low 30s into the 20s, all, all, all of the nights that she was missing. Um, and the father was... You know, he was actively involved in the search. Initially, he injured his shoulder, so he had to go into Conway, I think, with the mother to sort of get his shoulder fixed. But during that time, there was constant searching going on. Um, so they set up a base camp around White Ledge. So this is 1941. So I don't know what the road situation is, but I'm assuming they had whatever the equivalent of Route 16 is. I don't even know if these roads were paved or whether they were like just you know, hard packed dirt roads. Mm -hmm. I really don't know the situation. I think that automobiles were pretty ubiquitous at that point. So it wasn't uncommon for people to have vehicles. Um, But there was a pretty good crowd there. Initially, they were searching the bodies of water. So there's some brooks around there. There's a couple of small ponds. And, you know, they were concerned that she might have fallen into the water, but there was really no signs. Mm -hmm. Bunch of witnesses came by came out and said like, oh, I saw a girl sitting along the side of the road. I heard a girl yelling from the woods. There was a couple of, as there always is with these sort of uncontrolled searches, a couple of weird people that showed up that people started questioning, like, you know, was this person involved? One guy, I think the third or fourth day, they were sort of like, they started interrogating him. There was some concerns that he had like an arrest record they let him go, but they, with the understanding that he was supposed to show up the next day to be interviewed in more detail by the police, 
he didn't show up the next day. Hmm. So that got everybody thinking like, okay, maybe this is a kidnapping situation. Eventually that guy ended up in Boston. They arrested him. So there's a lot of sort of red herrings going on all at the same time. They're conducting ground searches with like dozens and dozens of people. Uh, the state of New Hampshire offered a $500 reward for this for this girl, which is a lot of money back in in the days. Oh, yeah, 1941. You know, yeah, progressively. So as the search went on, you know, four or five days into it, you know, the, the temperatures overnight are hitting like 24 degrees or hitting 20 degrees. So they're thinking like, all right, this is a five-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. She's been missing five or six days. The temperatures overnight have been below freezing. A couple of days it rained. You know, they've got hundreds of searchers on there. Um, wow. You know, they've already pivoted towards the idea of kidnapping. They've looked in the um, the bodies of water in and around the area. They've hit a four-mile radius around the, the location where she went missing. Mm-hmm. This is 1941, so getting around is not nowhere near as easy as it is today. Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, they've dealt with all these witnesses coming forward saying, like, we've heard her calling on the side of the road, blah, blah, blah. So the weekend after she goes missing, they're on like day five or something, and they're really losing hope at this point. Like the mm-hmm. father comes back. Um, he has, you know, he's sort of like been injured. Um, he's sort of losing hope. They're kind of getting to the point where they may end up sort of wrapping up the search. Somebody puts out a call to his coworkers and friends down in Lowell, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. One, actually 1,500 people, 1,500 people show up that weekend from Lowell (laughs) to execute a ground search. 1,500 people. They said that there was 6,000 vehicles in the area between people helping with searching and onlookers. Mm -hmm. Right. There's an awesome newsreel, Paramount News Services. You ever see those like... The, the they have like the harp music and they've got the horns and oh, it's sure. sort of like the music you see when they're marching off to war. Right. Like there's this Paramount News um, reel that just covers it and it's like two minutes worth of footage of them ground searching. You can see they're doing a grid search. They've all got their raincoats and boots on. I was going to send you the video. Like you'll be guided, blown away by this. Sure. Guided by who? Who is sort of operating the... Uh, it doesn't effort. say, it doesn't say, I, I don't know who's organizing it. I didn't get, I didn't, wasn't able to figure that out. Okay. It seemed like it was, I'm sure that like local law enforcement was helping to organize it, but yeah. you got 1500 people that show up to do a grid search. I've got a feeling that it was just like, there was some organization there, but it was probably chaos. So yeah, 41. I mean, fishing games started when they must've been involved. I mean, if you think about Joe Dodge, he was a post World War II character. Uh, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, I forget when Fishing Game was in, incorporated. I feel like in episode four, you did a history around like when they really got involved. Yeah. And there was like a specific case that triggered it, but I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that weekend, you got 1,500 people from Lowell show up. They still don't find her. So fast forward to the Monday. They go through a search all day on Monday. People from Lowell are still around there. Finally, they they make their way about two miles away from White Ledge. And the way they described the location is they said that they were near the junction of Middle Sister Trail. So if if you're in Chicora, if you go up Carter Ledge Trail, 
and then you want to get back to White Ledge Campground, you can do a loop from White Ledge. So basically go up Carter Ledge and then come back down Middle Sister Trail. So Middle Sister sort of comes off the backside of Chikora Mm -hmm. and loops around back into the White Ledge Campground area. And then apparently there's an abandoned trail. It was listed in the 1936 AMC Guide as Hobbs Brook Trail. The last I could figure out, I I found a little bit of chatter online that I guess this trail was closed in like 1955, but that may be a little adventure for us, Stomp, to go looking for Hobbs Brook Trail Mm -hmm. off the side of Chikora. But apparently they found her. Two guys were looking. They heard a little voice, and they come up to a little brook, a little lake area, and out pops this little girl. (laughs) And they're like, are you Pamela? And she's like, I am. So five-year-old girl, she had been in a little like um, a little indent inside like a, like a tree area or whatever. So she had basically just found a little, a little spot to lay down, covered herself out with leaves, Hmm. um, was able to drink from the brook. She hadn't eaten anything in, in the entire time that she was out. So she lost about eight pounds, uh, had pretty severe frostbite on her um, feet. Uh, but otherwise, you know, she was she was afraid that her parents were going to yell at her because she lost her blue ribbons that were in her hair. Aww. So she was nervous that her dad was going to get her mom and dad were going to get upset. What a doll, um, huh? That's amazing. Total doll. That's a miracle, so, really. Yeah, eight days in that area, um, and in twenty degree weather overnight. Did she, she say anything else? Are there any other quotes from she, her? Yep, I have them right here. So I, she said, I slept in a little hole that I filled up with some leaves, and I had to crawl out when I wanted some water and drink from the brook. And when I got hungry, I just crawled to the brook for some more water. She said she never saw another person. Um, she heard planes searching because they did have search planes overhead, um, but she wasn't able to signal them. So she ended up losing eight pounds, which was nearly 18% of her body weight. She had cuts, bruises, and significant frostbite on her feet. Uh, they had to cut the sneakers from her feet. Oh, um, wow. I wonder if she tried yelling or anything like that. I don't know. She said that uh, she didn't, but um, the mother had said that the frostbite had turned her feet black and that they had swelled up to nearly double their normal size. And she spent a total of 19 days in the hospital before being released. Mm -hmm. Um, They did issue reward money. It was a $500 reward, and they split it uh, across 87 people. (laughs) And they gave the two guys that actually found her $25 each and then split the rest across the other other people. Wow. Incredible story. um, Yep. Yeah, exactly. And Pamela went on... um, she went on to become the vice president of the American Cancer Society. Hmm. She, um, yeah, she was an editorial director of the Arthritis Foundation, corporate communications director for Lane Bryant, which is a clothing store, and then vice president of creative services at the Cancer Society, and then also um, a, a communications director for the U.S. Committee for the United Nations Children's Fund. Mm-hmm. So um, her mother actually survived her death, unfortunately. She passed away at the age of 56 um, in 1996 on September 11th. She lived in Orleans, Mass. on the Cape. 
So she was 56 years old. She lived on the Cape and then also had a home in Sarasota, Florida, where she had just recently retired. <laughs> it was quite a life. No kidding. Incredible story. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to, there's a couple of sources that I found. So New York Times obituary. Um, I found the missing girl videos. There's two of them. There's a pre and a post finding her. Those were on the... Um, I forget they were on like a, a newsreel site, so I'll, I'll add those. And then there was a Time Magazine article that I used. And then most importantly, I want to give a shout out to the Useless Information podcast. They did an entire episode on this yeah. called Lost in the Mountains. Highly recommended, deeper dive than we're doing here. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to bring this story because I had seen it posted on the Forgotten New Hampshire uh, Facebook group uh, like a month ago and I was like oh I gotta bring this up to stomp and then do a do a quick dive on this one mm-hmm. yeah nice work that's a great story yeah and this is like it's interesting like I think about um, some of the cases we've had where that kid that ended up dying um, I forget his name was it Michael McCarthy I forget his name but he had died up by uh, wheelback and he had actually climbed up the mountain yep and, you know, I'd read some theories about like when children get lost, young children tend not to panic. They tend to just sort of, you know, find a safe, a place where they feel safe and don't move. Hmm. Uh, and they don't tend to exert a lot of energy, which I think that makes sense in this situation. Like she didn't, you know, she went two miles, but she didn't exert a lot of energy. It sounds like she landed where she was pretty early on and then mm-hmm. conserved as much energy as she 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 needed to survive. Wow. Whereas they say like a little bit older, once you develop that sort of fear factor in your brain, like you're more likely to keep moving and exert energy and maybe your, your survival odds are a little bit lower when you get a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Agreed. So that is it. Stomp $500 reward split across 87 people. <laughs> It still went a long ways back then. Uh. I guess. <laughs> I guess, but I just, yeah, so this was about $6 a person. Yeah. What would that equate to? I have no idea. We'll have to do our, um, the dollar we'll was, do our infl- yeah, it was worth a lot more back then. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so Pamela Hollingsworth. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes so you can you can look at those old newsreels. And that guy that does the voice, his name is Gregory Abbott. Like, you'll recognize him immediately. Mm. Like, anybody that's grown up that's of a certain age that's seen those newsreels in school, like, that voice is just, it's, it's hard-coded in your mind. That's great. Will do. Slasher's Hiking Topic of the Week. All right, so that was a little history segment. So now we're on to our official segment one here, Stomp, which is um, search and rescue numbers for 2019, 2020, and 2021. I, I, it's incredible. I took a look at your uh, Excel sheet there, man. It's pretty comprehensive. So what are we seeing? Any interesting yeah. trends? Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but just to set the set the the listeners so they understand, basically what I've done, and I've actually been doing this for a few years, is I have a, just a sort of a spreadsheet or a database of um, details on search and rescue events that have happened in New Hampshire. So, I this the numbers that I'm going to share in the in the show here 
are media reported search and rescue events. So there's a whole world of stuff that goes on that doesn't make the news. But I think that this is what I would say is a sort of a representative sample. We've had like about four or five years sort of of consistent data that we've that I've kept up on. So you can kind of get some patterns and trends from this just because essentially anything that makes a news report typically means that a, a conservation officer had to be activated to go out to get somebody or volunteer search and rescue organization was involved. I think what doesn't make the news typically is walk out or situations where somebody calls 911 and says like, I'm lost, and they're able to sort of direct people out on their own without having to activate any resources. So Mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in that area that I just don't have any access to. The numbers I'm going to share here are are based on uh, news media reports. And I just basically take the news media report I take down like what trail they were on, what mountain, what the date is, uh, the age, the lo- the location or the the resident of the the victim, uh, the gender information, and then I have some su- subjective ratings that I include, which is um, sort of what the category is. We've got like six or eight categories, which I'll talk about. Um, I'll talk about, and I include like links to the the news site information. And then I also have like the rating that we've talked about around shame and no shame, um, which is sort of a fun little way to look at things and break it down. So, um, yeah. So with that stomp, just to start off with, there's two ways to look at the total numbers. There is total reported events. So an event is anytime like a, a rescue team has to go out and save somebody. And then there's people involved in rescue. So, The total reported events are always going to be a little bit lower than the people involved because you have some rescues where there might be like one event, but five people needing a rescue. Mm -hmm. So that's why you'll, you know, and most of the numbers I'm going to talk about, I'm going to report in terms of the people involved, not the, not the specific events. So sometimes things will be inflated because if you have five people that like had no headlamps, it's just, that's, you know, there's going to be a little bit more in the numbers there, but for the last, I didn't include 2022 yet right. because it's the year's not done. But I'll, I'll be, we'll do that in September or December. But for total events, 2019, 2020, and 2021, 2019 you get 92 events. 2020 you get 92 events, and then 2021 you get 98 events. So pretty, hmm. pretty consistent. Yep, interesting. And then the the total people involved is also very consistent. It's 110 people in 2019, 110 people in 2020, 118 people in 2021. All right. Okay. So very consistent. So when we're talking about overall trends, a little bit of a bump in 2021, but otherwise pretty flat. Next is categories. So there are um, one, two, three, four, five, six categories there is um, people, you know, fatalities. There is people that experience fatigue. Then I have a category which is called loss, which is basically lumped in anybody that had navigation issues, headlamp, or just general panic about not being able to be found. Sure. Um, then there's lower leg injuries, um, medical issues, and then I have a miscellaneous injury, which is anything that's like an injury that's not lower leg, so head, shoulder, or other. Uh, and then the last category is reckless behavior. So mm-hmm. the most common category is lower leg injury. So that has remained consistent from the you know 2019, 2020, and 2021. I've got 43 in 19, 
44 in 2020, and then 40 leg injuries in 2021. Yeah. Um, the next most common category is the sort of lost, you know, navigation, headlamp, panic situation. So from 2019, there was 32 of those events. 2020, there's 35, and then 2021, 30. Hmm. So um, pretty consistent. Fatigue is is another one that's a little bit lower, but you have like seven in 2019, four in 2020, and then 11 in 2021. And I think 2021, we had a period there where it was like extreme heat and there was a number of people that ran into fatigue issues because of that. So you saw a little bit of a spike in like August. Okay. <clears throat> right. Um, miscellaneous like head, shoulder, others are pretty, pretty all over the map. So 2019, we had six. 2020, we had three, and then 2021, we had 13. What I noticed about 2021 is we had a lot of slip and falls where head injuries were involved, yep. uh, which was uh, you know something that I saw sort of spike up a little bit. And then... Um, well, that's a pretty the, big jump, I mean, for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, I don't know what it is, yeah. but I, my theory is that like a lot of inexperienced hikers were around with COVID, they slipped and you know they didn't... They didn't just lower their, they hurt their legs, they hurt their heads. Yeah. Um, next category is fatalities. So fatalities, you're gonna, I knew you are going to ask about this. So the, and I'll, I'll have a deeper dive on this later on in this segment, but 2019, there was six fatalities. 2020, there was eight fatalities. And then 2021, there was six fatalities. As of today, in 2022, I'm tracking six fatalities. So we're pretty consistent with the numbers year over year for the last four years right now. Hmm. Yeah, I wish we had more data as to what happened to them medically, but that's just not I'll, privy. I'll get, I, I, well, I'll get to that. I can, I can give a little bit, of a, um, little bit more detail on that in, later on into the segment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last category, sorry, so we had death fatigue, the loss category, which again is headlamps, panic, navigation, lower leg injuries, medical issues not resulting in fatalities. So these are like an example would be like that Keith, who um, we had done a report on, I think last year, like he had like gallstones on trail. <clears throat> and then like some people have like low blood sugar or whatever. Medical issues are pretty consistent, like six in 2019, five in 2020, and then 20, 2021, we had seven. So yeah. not as many, but you do have some medical issues. And then the last one is reckless behavior. So these are the people that are just being like, I'll give some examples in a minute, but reckless behavior. Um, in 2019, we had 10 cases. 2020, we had 11. And then 2021, we had 11. So pretty consistent. So does it um, say reckless behavior in the report or accounting no that's so these categories are the i'm categorizing these based on the media reports yeah okay got it right so these are the ones that are like and i'll give some examples of why i call them reckless but um before i do that just the gender situation on these ones 23 of them involve men nine involve women so men are most definitely um, more likely to do the reckless behavior stuff and then when you look at the total age breakdown under 20, 29 years old, 23 cases, and then older people are only nine. So young men are much more likely to do the reckless stuff on trail. <laughs> so, PhD and duh. <laughs> no yeah, exactly. But I pulled out I pulled out some examples for you, Stomp, because I knew you were going to ask this. So my, my 
perfect example of reckless on trail is the snowbridge guy on Tux. Remember the guy that, oh, that went under the snowbridge and yeah. got crushed? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like a so Darwin that's an moment. Example. Yeah, yeah. And then the, another one, the lady, I don't know if you remember this one or not, but there was a lady who had a vision quest moment on Monadnock where she was like Instagramming live on Monadnock. I remember that one. As the... As the sun was setting and she's like, I don't have a headlamp. I don't know how I'm going to get down there. And she ended up like getting lost in the dark, fell off a cliff, had to be like hospital. You know, she had to get a helicopter, a hospital ride. So uh-huh. um, there was also another example I had. that I picked out my favorite ones. The kid from Indiana that got lost near Garfield Pond with his cousins. And he was like missing from them for the entire night. Mm. And no one could explain like where he was or what happened. Um, and I think he just got into a fight with his cousins and like slept like right off the trail or something, but they had to call a search and rescue to save him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there was an old guy that got stuck on the great Gulf and he was completely in over his head, had no headlamp, no hiking experience. And they had to pick him off the great Gulf. So yeah. those are examples of reckless behavior. Sure. Okay. So moving on to common months. So what do you think the most frequent months are for search and rescue events? You know, honestly, I would I would guess probably October would be one of the big ones just because of all the migrants mm. coming to look at the leaves and stuff. But uh, that's right, that's right. October and August. Um, so if I combine all three years worth of data, um, both October and August have fifty total search and rescue um, media reported people involved in August in rescues. I find August to be interesting. Yeah, because I would think that. Any month, really, in the summer or, you know, the spring shoulder season would be particularly bad, but that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then June and July, June had 44 total people involved. Mm -hmm. July had 43, followed by September and May, which had, September had 36 and May had uh, um, 35. So you have basically, it's sort of a crescendo. It starts in May. And then June and July and August are busy. You get a little bit of a dip in September and then finish with a big bang in October. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Quietest months. Yeah, boy. It's coming up. Quietest months are February and December. And then January is typically quiet, but we had a weird January in 2021 where there was 11 people involved in search and rescues. Mm-hmm. I don't quite odd. remember the circumstances, but... Uh, yeah. 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 It's very odd. So, um, moving on to some trends in age ranges. So, I categorize things basically by under 29 years old, and then I've got 30 to 39, 40 to 49, and then so on and et cetera, and then 70 and older. So, um, we have um, for the last three years in the age ranges 136 people involved in search and rescues that are under 29. Mm hmm. Uh, by far the largest. And then the 30 to 39 age bracket, there's 49 people involved in search and rescues. 40 to 49, 35. (laughs) 50 to 59 is 46. And then 60 to 69, 51. And then 17 people over 70 years old. (laughs) What's up with the (laughs) 60-year-olders? I don't know. I don't know. That's funny. Huh. Um, geographic trends, Stomp, you want to know where people are um, getting rescued from the most? Sure. 
I have a, so, a, an inkling, but let's check it out. Yeah, yeah. So across these three years, there's been 338 people involved in search and rescue. So um, Massachusetts has 100 total people. So the mass residents are representing. They're in the <laughs> lead, followed, <laughs> followed closely by New Hampshire at 93. Huh. Um, and then that's basically, so that's, that's the bulk of that. So there's 338 Two thirds are Massachusetts and New Hampshire, and then uh, the next con- the next state that is represented is Maine. There's 19 people from Maine, um, 17 from Rhode Island, and surprisingly, Pennsylvania and Connecticut—not uh, Connecticut, but Pennsylvania's got 14 people, and then Connecticut's also got 14 people, and then the rest of the top 10 is rounded out by New York, New Jersey, Canada, and Vermont. So what? What do you make of the the spread here? So you have New Hampshire, but then the three surrounding states, why would Maine and Vermont be less than Mass? Is it because they have their own mountains and they're not necessarily coming over here? Probably, I would think so. Um, and then also, I think you've got to look at this from the perspective of transactions. If you think of um, each individual hike as a transaction, mm-hmm. my assumption is that if you look at everybody that hikes across the White Mountains in the New Hampshire region, the number of transactions being done by Massachusetts residents and New Hampshire residents yep. is much higher just because there's a higher population of people that are coming to the Whites from Massachusetts versus Vermont gotcha, and Maine. Gotcha. And therefore, the likelihood of just more um, volume. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a good point to think about when you look at this. So you've got maybe. A little over 100 people per year are involved in search and rescues that get reported by the media. I don't know what the volume is. If you add everything in, it's probably a lot more. But realistically, when you compare that to the amount of people that go on hiking activities, like, and I don't have any solid numbers on how many hikes per year, but it has to be like in the mil, you know, in the million range, I would think. Mm-hmm. So when you think about like the percentage of people that are hike, the the number of actual hikes versus the pers- the people that have needed rescues, and you break that into a percentage, like your odds of being involved in a in a SAR call are pretty pretty slim. <laughs> right. So, Unless you're on a SAR team, <laughs> then it's like, yeah, exactly. holy moly, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone matters. Um, and one thing I need to do is I got to dig into. I got to take a look at like the reckless number. So there's 88 people that are outside of New England that were involved in um, search and rescues. And I got to take a look to see what percentage of, if there's any sort of trend of reckless behavior by those folks or not. So Mm -hmm. um, I didn't look at that yet. But anyway, Hmm. Massachusetts and New Hampshire certainly represent. Um, Mountains. So I pulled some data on the, the top 10 most frequently involve um, mountains in search and rescue so oh okay the the leading contender so what I did with what I did with um, Lafayette and uh, Lincoln is I just labeled that as Franconia Ridge so any incident that happens on old bridal falling waters um, or greenleaf or anywhere on the ridge or those mountains I've just I just throw it all into Franconia Ridge just because I think that's fair because it's just I don't know why I did that, but I do. So Franconia Ridge leads the way with 35 events, Mm -hmm. and then Mount Washington is second with 34. So those are definitely the hot spots, Franconia and Mount Washington, followed by Monadnock, and then Welch-Dickey. 
So I'm surprised Welsh is up there. And then Welsh. Well, think about it. Like the, the, the there's a lot of activity stomp sure. because they had a string where they had like three or four rescues within like a one month period one summer. I think sure. in 2021. Right. Yeah. Last year it was so, crazy up there. This year, yeah. nothing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then, oh, I missed it. You know what I did is I, I put Mount Chikora and then I put Chikora. So Chikora's at 17. So they're actually third oh, okay. place. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I was like, wait a minute, why is Chikora at seven? Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, you know what? I got to I gotta just fix the uh, the formatting on that because they're actually at 17. They're at 23. So that's right. Oh, okay. Franconia Ridge, Mount Washington, Chikora, Monadnock, Welsh Dickey, and okay. then uh, followed by Mount Jefferson. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, so those are the those are Mount the biggest hotspots. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, Caps Ridge, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's such a weird summit too, with all the boulders. It's not very good footing up there. I wonder if that's the whole area. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So now moving on to this is my subjective rating, and I know that like you know I. I've actually evolved a lot over the over the years. Like I used to be like much more of a kind of a jerk about this, and I'd be like, "Oh, everybody basically is rated as shame." And now I've I like I don't do that. Like I have some sort of standard rules. Like if you get caught out without a headlamp, you're automatically going to get called the shame. Yeah. If you're involved in a category that's called reckless, you're going to get a shame. Um, and then that's about it. But when I look at the breakdown of the 338 people, 106 I, categor- I categorized as shame. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 212 were no shame, which basically means like, you you know, you got, you got hurt, you had a medical issue, um, you know, whatever. And I make no judgments on the fatalities. That's just a separate category. It's just, you know, there's always sad stories. But um, some of the greatest hits when it came to things that I rated as shame was... Um, you know, the, the, the couple with the kid that got lost walking around Flume Gorge and had to call 911. Yeah. Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, dude, there's no way the, the, like, just turn around. There's nothing, nothing, no way you can get lost. Um, the guy from Florida who lost his boots and only had two of the 10 essentials with him on, um, falling waters. <laughs> right. I don't know if you remember that or not. Um, the two, these are just examples of what I'm arguing to share. There was two Instagram influencers who got lost on whiteface, like at the very beginning of COVID where everyone was like, stay the hell home. Yep. And these two influencers were like basically calling 911 for a rescue because they like got lost off trail, like a few feet. Then they were posting on their Instagram account about how they had like this magical transformative experience because they went hiking and everyone's like, you feel to mention you activated a search and rescue event in the middle of COVID. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, and then I had, there was a group of grad students that got in trouble on Carter dome on the black angel trail completely unprepared and you know in over their head so yeah. that's the type of example of like the shame stuff that we put in there gotcha. so you can put your shame drop in stuff. oh hell yeah yeah good stuff um all right so last thing here and then we'll do closing thoughts is so the fatalities again there's across 2019 2020 and 2021 there's been 20 total fatalities so there was six in 2019 eight in 2020 and six in um, 2021. So the majority of these are due to medical issues on trail. So there was 10 incidents that were labeled on the um, on the press releases as medical incidents. So we don't know for sure what these are. 
we can presume that you know you're most likely you're talking about heart attacks, strokes, maybe aneurysms. Um, so that is sort of half of the cases there that we're we're sort of putting up to the assume, assumption is that they're in that category. And then there were two cases of hypothermia. Um, there were three what we're calling climbing accidents. Then there was a uh, there was two avalanche. And then three accidental falls. So there was a, um, I think, a, a case of a, an accidental fall in Cannon. There was a gentleman that had um, been struck by a tree. He had his hammock set up, and a tree fell on him. Mm-hmm. And then I think that there was a um, a person that had fallen off a cathedral ledge, and they don't know whether or not that was a slip and fall or an intentional suicide, but. You know, those are the sort of the, the that's how the, the fatalities are broken down. Mm-hmm. 18 men, two women. There you go. So, so there you go. Um, nine of them were over 60. There was five in their 50s. Six um, were in their 40s and then no one under 30. So the youngest was 32 years old. And of the medical events, four of the people were um, under the age of 60. And then, like I said, in 2022, we've currently seen six fatalities. Yep. Do you know the ages so, of those people? In 2022? Yeah. I don't. I'll, I'll have to pull those yeah. up. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about we'll that do in that December. Again. Sounds yep. good. So, Stomp, my closing thoughts on this is that the numbers are pretty consistent. Yeah, it seems it. Um. Headlamps and navigation issues along with lower leg injuries seem to be the most common issues. And And then, um, as I said before, rescues overall are pretty rare, but we should all be prepared and we should all ideally be carrying things with us that could potentially help somebody that's in trouble because you're probably just as likely to run into somebody that's getting into trouble that you'll need to help out than you are having to need a rescue yourself. Yeah. And guys are risk takers, especially young guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guys, young guys definitely uh, take more risk. And I will, I got to scrub the data a little bit. I got to clean up that Mount Shakura thing and I'm going to take the names off. Uh, but I will post a link to the Slasher website where you can take a look at this data if you want. I'm happy to share it with anybody. And again, just a reminder that this is media news reported events. So this is not all encompassing about what search and rescue does. Um, there's a lot more that goes on that we're not privy to. This is simply what they put out in, in news reports. Yeah, let's let's start with the uh, national stuff. Yeah, yeah, we've been holding off on this for a while. So I just saw this the other day, and I couldn't believe it. Did you read the story yet? I haven't yet, so I'm going to read this live. So this is a hiker that's lost in a Colorado forest, uh, and he was overlooked by the helicopter rescue crew looking for him because they mistake his, they mistook his waving for help as just saying hello. <laughs> I always say hello to helicopters too. I got to stop doing that. I get so excited when I see them. Yeah, but I know, but what was the helicopter crew thinking? And like, 
wouldn't you be curious? I don't know. I'm, I'm curious uh, what the protocols are for that type of situation. Oh. But I thought that was really funny. <laughs> That's funny. So this is a group in Colorado. They called 911 on September 8th after one of the members didn't return to the camp the night before. So helicopter crews are all looking for this guy. Uh, they did. They started a ground search as well. Ultimately, the Black Hawk, Hawk helicopter spotted someone they thought could be the missing hiker. Um, then they flew right on by. So he didn't seem super excited to see the rescuer. So you want to be super excited. <laughs> Um, and he didn't completely match the description given to the searchers. Um, and he just didn't seem frantic enough. So you really want to like, you want to go full Gilligan's Island here. Oh, you know, totally. you need to go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the pack color that they gave wasn't the same. And when the pilot looked down, he saw someone that kind of matched the description. Um, but the man, I guess, backed off. He looked lackadaisical. He was probably exhausted. Mm-hmm. And the pilot was like, okay, he looks fine. So then they flew off. Um, He just didn't seem in distress. So experts say that this incident is proof that if you're lost or need help and a plane is in sight, look alive out there. Wake up, fellas. (laughs) Yeah, don't do Uh, the queen's Make it very clear that you need help. Yep. (laughs) So I guess in this case, yeah, exactly. Uh, potential tragedy was averted. Searchers on the ground found the man and brought him to safety. So he was tired, dehydrated, and cold, but not seriously injured. And I guess the dude made a couple of smart moves. He stayed in one place to avoid danger, and then he moved out into the open so rescuers could find him in the morning. So um, good for him, and that's a good lesson. So if you see a helicopter, again, full Gilligan's Island, wave those arms, go nuts. And make sure they know that you are looking for them, too. Yeah, there you go. That's it. Okay. Now we are going to Scottsdale, Arizona, yep. out west. Busy, busy. Uh, matter, matter of fact, I was looking. So Tasha, who we had on a few weeks ago, her and Dan did the Sedona up to the Grand Canyon and Page, Arizona, and that whole area trip. Well, I was looking at their pitches. Awesome area. Yeah. If, you've ever, if you're ever looking for an idea for a trip, Sedona, go up to Flagstaff, go to Page, Go check out Glen Canyon Dam. Go check out the Grand Canyon. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, this next story is in um, Scottsdale, Arizona. So a drone was heralded as a critical instrument used to re- rescue a distressed hiker in Scottsdale. Yeah. So according to a release by the Scottsdale Fire Department, paramedics piloted the drone for about 10 minutes after an incident was reported. Um, they were looking to locate a woman in her 60s that was off trail. Um, on a UTV, which I think is one of those sort of sit-down um, off, off-road off vehicles. So they have six drones capable of flying 400 feet in a radius of five miles away from the pilot's location. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty And pretty the advanced. drone was flown about two miles. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, these guys are really so, ahead of it. Yeah, so they were able to find her, and I guess this woman was off trail. She was treated on the, hosp- at the, on the mountain and refused transport to the hospital, so I guess in addition to this lady, they had performed like two additional rescues. You know, those UTVs and like those off trail, like you could like fly off trail and just disappear. I mean, maybe it's a little bit different in the desert, mm-hmm. but it's still like those things are so powerful and it's so dangerous. Like to, if you flip or something, like you could get killed. Right. You see the picture there um, with the giant knobby wheel 
I'm pretty yeah. sure that's one of the alternate wheels that you can put below a litter. Um, they do have wider ones like that. I'm not 100% sure, but it looks like that's a litter next to it as well. But uh, mm-hmm. that wouldn't work out here. But that's meant for uh, sandier surfaces. Very interesting. interesting yeah. 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 But it's a neat thing. It also says that the drones can deliver water, flashlights, and other life-saving materials to people who are distressed and in need of rescue. So Arizona's like really killing it with the drone capabilities here. <laughs> yeah, and it makes perfect sense that they would like they would like have that as a common tool because there's like not a lot of tree cover, so they can just really get way up above and just sort of co- if they can cover five mile radius, like they can just really cover looking down on on um, in a wide area very quickly. Yeah, well, and with the heat out there, like time is is of the essence. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're moving on to Russia. Stomp, you did you picked this story on purpose because I'm going to screw up the pronunciation <laughs> here. But in Russia, eight people have died climbing the Kaluskevskaya <laughs> Sopka volcano. Good job, Conrad. <laughs> you should I, you should isolate that that vocal. We'll drop that in somewhere. Uh, Kaluskevskaya. Sopska volcano in Russia's Far East. Interfax News Agency quoted a local f- official as saying, after freezing winds halted a rescue um, attempt. So earlier, local authorities said six people had been killed and six more were believed to be stranded from a party of 12, wow. including two guides. But two more people died, according to Roman Veseleski. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the Kamchatka Territory Deputy Prime Minister. Um his information came from a guide who was communicating from the volcano by satellite phone. So apparently they looked to climb this 16,000 foot volcano on Tuesday, but they ran into trouble on Saturday when some of the group fell to their death at almost 4,200 meters. So they're probably around 14,000 feet there. Wow, what a disaster. One person is thought to have a broken leg. Yeah. Yeah. High winds. Looks like a mess. 67 miles an hour, seven degree temps, yep. Fahrenheit. Wow. Yeah. What a mess. It doesn't really give a lot of details, but it sounds like they might have had like some kind of a rope accident or something. Mm-hmm. Um, what a mess. Russia. So I did enjoy trying to get my uh, my pronunciations going there. Though. Yeah. It was fun. Interesting fact, though. It's like this one volcano is the tallest of over 160 volcanoes in this area. It's a peninsula in Russia. It's like, wow, who knew? Yeah, I don't think about like uh, volcanoes in Russia, but I guess they, uh, Russia is a very big place. So, mm-hmm. yep. All right. So, uh, stop me if you heard this one before. Hiker is stuck on a three hundred foot cliff, and he tells nine one one he can't go up or down. Wow. Oregon. This happened in Oregon. Yeah. So, ooh, they have the drone footage of him. <laughs> Look at him. He's like, I bet you're wondering how I ended up here. So, uh, it's um, genius. Oh my god. That's a. Sp- Oh, that's it looks a, like he can just climb up. That's like the knife's edge. Like if you were to bit. isolate main, you know, Katahdin's knife's edge, dump it on top of uh, an ocean front. Wow, that's crazy. So, yeah, oh, there he is. So, He's I just mean, sort of sitting there. Yeah. Yeah, you can see him. Oh, my goodness. The, the drone's got him. The, now he's like, oh. He has the negative of the drones, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So, 41-year-old. Yeah, the guy is just on top of there. He's just, like, embarrassed. So so he was stuck on the barren 300-foot cliff, nearly 200 feet below the rescuers who'd made their way to the top near Lone Branch Beach in Brookings. Interesting. They risked their That's lives hilarious. to get him. So a rescuer had to rappel down 
uh, and then they both descended to the beach. The rescue took five hours. Uh, <laughs> crazy. It's very oh, similar yeah. to that um, that Eagle Crag story, I suppose. That's what I was thinking yeah. about when I saw that. It was just funny to see. It's amazing that they have drone footage of this guy in Oregon just like sitting there like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Help. So, yeah. Well, I guess he did the right uh, thing under the circumstances. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, all right. So this next one is hikers witness woman fall. Uh, oh, no. 900 feet. Oh, she, she fell 900 feet from below the summit of Capitol Peak in Pitkin County. So this is occurring in Colorado. It's a it's 14,000 footer. Uh, it's one of the most difficult mountains to climb with extreme exposure and loose crumbling rock. Just before 8 a.m., a witness contacted emergency services, reported that a rock that the victim was trying to grab onto gave way. Ugh. Oh. Uh, you still there, Mike? I'm there, yeah. Oh, okay. I just like your the link to the article just like crashed my machine. Oh, that's okay. Sorry about that. Um it's no probably a Russian hacker. Uh <laughs> could be. <laughs> that's right. I read that Russian article and now my hack my, uh, computer. So hack. they initially estimated that the woman fell fifteen hundred feet to two thousand feet and ultimately it was approximately nine hundred feet. That's terrible. Um do you, um, when you, I don't know, this is depressing, but you fall like a um, thousand feet or something like that. Do you, I've, I've heard this before, like, do you die of a heart attack like before you hit the ground or do you, <laughs> oh, or, or is it? I don't know. I've, I don't know if anybody has survived to tell the story, but that's, that's can you imagine? Oh my goodness. That's no, so horrible. I don't want to think about it. Yeah. Uh, so no, they had a, do a, a recovery mission, which as you can tell on a 14,000 foot mountain is not easy. Uh, they found the body at 2.47 p.m., and they flew the body out to a lower camp several miles uh, below elevation. And that's all. Uh, and again, this is why I will never climb. <laughs> it's the old airport airline analogy. No, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I have no interest in doing that. Yikes. It freaks me out. Oh, totally. All right, so stop. This Going is local. the story you have been. This is the, so we're moving to local. This is the story that Stomp has been so excited about. He was like, he, he uh, yeah. So Stomp sometimes like he'll send me like anytime he gets excited with something over text, like he'll he'll start with dude and then and like an exclamation point, <laughs> and then I'm always waiting for like, oh my god, he's got some really good scoop about one of our friends or something, and then he's like, read this story. So. um a Durham beaver gets a second chance thanks to first responders. So there was a search and rescue for a beaver in Durham, New Hampshire. So um, yeah. a UNH student, Johnny on the stick here, <laughs> called uh, Fishing Game today to report that a beaver was stuck in the outlet or the outflow inlet at the Durham Reservoir. So the unlucky beaver was at the bottom 15 feet down with only one way to get out and appeared to have been trapped for some time. So conservation officers called on the Durham Fire Department uh, for assistance to bring the water levels up so the beaver could use a 75-foot culvert to exit on the other side of the dam. So mm -hmm. water levels are super low, so I think this thing just got caught in the, the, the um, 
the drainage area. So the fire department jumped into action and brought the water levels up and the beaver entered the culvert. The only problem was that it didn't want to leave. So the first responders improvised and tied an ugly mess of things that float and sent it through the pipe with a charge of pumped water to force it out the other side. Wasn't a quick process, but it worked. So special thanks to the men and women at the Durham Fire Department. Thumbs up to the conservation officer and the UNH student that um, notified them. So very cool story. It is. Yeah. And it caught my attention because the first thing that came to mind is, wait a minute, the rescue a beaver, but not a dog on trail. But then it, I thought about it more and like, okay, logistically, it was probably much easier, this and that. And uh, the the animals, animals such as a beaver are just naturally in these habitats. So it's within the jurisdiction of fish and game, whereas dogs yep. not necessarily uh, aren't. But uh, it yep. it was interesting. Yeah, you know it's 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 cool, and we've got I got a little bit of experience with beavers at the place up in Maine. So we had for a couple of years we had a lodge in the back corner of the pond. So the pond there's only like five or six houses on this pond. It's you know it's a good sized pond, but it's you know it's it's basically like five ten minutes to get from one side to the other. So it's not that big, and we had a big lodge set up on the back corner where there's no houses. And uh, you'd see the beaver pop up every once in a while. And then I think they call them kits. I think that's what they call their babies. So hmm. um, we ran into some issues a couple of years ago because I think much like, you know, I think beers get, they get kicked out of the den when they're like their second year, I believe they get kicked out. And then there's a lot of trouble with those young beers running around. Um but the same thing happens with beavers is that the young beavers get kicked out of the lodge and then they've got to go off and find their own territory and their own sort of breeding situation. So we, we you know, we have a little like a little dock that we swim out to and all this stuff. And for, I remember it was probably like three summers ago for a good two week period, we had a problem because the the juvenile beaver kept like swimming around like it wouldn't it wouldn't leave the lodge. It kept trying to get back in and they kept kicking it out hmm. and it would show up every morning. So the kids like, like to swim out to the dock in the summer, but they wouldn't do it because this beaver was floating around. And then the other beaver would come and like chase the beaver away and stuff. So it was a whole thing. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's very common for beavers to attack humans, but I definitely read an article a while back where somebody got attacked pretty severely by a beaver in Minnesota. They were swimming and, the beaver got caught to them, so not to be messed with. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, we have, a, we have right, a, so. a whole bunch of rescues: one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, Blueberry yeah. Mountain, September. Yeah, it's getting busy. Yeah, yeah, I can get this one. So, um, on September tenth, uh, Fishing Game received a call for an injured hiker on Blueberry Mountain Trail in Benton. So, fifty-five-year-old hiker from Vermont. Um, was hiking uh, Blueberry Mountain with her husband when she suffered a leg injury, which prevented her from being able to hike down. So conservation officers, Pemi Valley Search and Rescue, and Upper Valley Wilderness Response all responded to the trail. So they were able to get an ATV to drive up about a mile or so, which makes sense. I think Benton Trail, they can get people up there. And then um, she was placed in a litter and carried down the trail to the waiting ATV and driven back to the trailhead. So call came in around two o'clock. They were able to get her to the trailhead by 540. Uh, so that's not a bad 
result there. So Blueberry Mountain is, it's the, this is the mountain across from Glencliff Trail. If you're going to go hike Musalak right, yeah. um, via Glencliff, like Blueberry is down the street a little ways. And then you can, you can pretty easily drive down that road. And then I think you can drive up the initial part of that, um, that hiking trail. There might be rocks like in front of there, but I'm sure they can get around them in the ATV. Uh, so that's not a bad place to, to take an ATV. Yeah. And that person was very lucky because there were a hundred <laughs> SAR volunteers training at Cannon that day. So captive audience. So everybody just sort of packed up and went. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's like, hey, we. we she was like, why? It happens. Why is there 500 people here? <laughs> <laughs> it happens like, yeah, whenever we do a training or a hike, a qualifying hike, <laughs> inevitably there's a call. It's it's funny. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. So now we got, we got another one. And Blueberry Mountain, um, that's a good, if you're just getting into hiking or you just sort of, you want like a nice easy hike for like the 52 with the views or you want a good fall hike with the kids, like that's a great mountain. It gets a little like, I get a little confused up top on the on the peak there, but overall it's a pretty easy mountain to mm-hmm. kind of manage. So anyway, um, hikers rescued in separate events. So we will start on September 11th. Uh, New Hampshire Fishing Game was notified of a hiker who was suffering from severe dehydration um, symptoms near the summit of Mount Osceola. So this was a 72-year-old hiker from Connecticut, and she was unable to continue descending the trailhead to Tripoli Road. So rescuers from Pemi Valley, search and rescue, as well as conservation officers were able to respond to assist. So she was helped by some passing Good Samaritan hikers who provided um, rehydration to her, and she was able to begin hiking again without assistance. The majority of the rescuers were diverted to a subsequent rescue that was beginning for an injured hiker on the Gorge Brook Trail in Mount Musalak in Benton. Um, so two members of Pemi Valley were able to meet this hiker on the trail at 341, and they hiked down the remaining mile with her to the trailhead, so they were able to arrive without further incident at 432. So that's not bad. They got She was dehydrated. She made it a little over a mile in 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. So all good. And then um, around the same time, at 4.50, there was an injured hiker that was reported on the Falling Waters Trail in Lincoln. So this was a 59-year-old hiker from New Hampshire. She fell and sustained a serious injury to her upper leg. So volunteers from Pemi Valley Search and Rescue, as well as conservation officers, responded to provide assistance. So rescue party reached her. Oh, this is quick. So she called at 4.50. Rescue party reached her at 5.30 to provide medical treatment and then they transported her down it was less than a half a mile down the trail so Mm -hmm. she she got injured pretty close to the trailhead which is good right so listeners (laughs) should should know i mean this is worth talking about because it's actually really funny at two o'clock i left for reckless so this is the reckless 100k celebration day and you actually referenced it mike during your your comedy monologue about me not taking calls you'd never forgive me and this and that so wouldn't you know it the second i leave for the show like within five minutes two calls come in and then there's a third it was just oh head slapping moment like are you kidding me but it's you missed all the actions yeah it was like fomo for sure but 
it, it, you know, for me, it reinforced the fact that we are all volunteers and we cannot do this 100% of the time. You do what you can and you help out as much as you can and everybody is appreciated for it and everybody deserves a day off. I mean, I think it's important yeah. for rescuers and EMT people and, you know, first responders to, to have that outlet or whatever your hobby just to be healthy and normal and you know you cannot live this stuff 24 7 it'll it'll kill you yeah yeah definitely yeah um yeah and then just moving on like the third one that you were talking about on september 11th um fishing game received a 911 call at two o'clock um there was an injured hiker on the gorge brook trail on mount musalaki in benton for now on when i talk about musalaki i'm gonna i'm gonna switch it up and say musalak and then musalaki <laughs> so that way i can't get any garbage from anyone because i say it both ways um <laughs> clever so a uh, hiker was a 33 year old from massachusetts she was hiking the ridge loop um on um, Mount Musalaki alone when she suffered a lower leg injury that prevented her from being able to hike down the mountain. So Pemi uh, Search and Rescue responded along with conservation officers. She was about three miles up the Gorge Brook Trail from the nearest road. So rescue was hiked up to her to reach around four o'clock. And then once there, they were able to carry her down the Gorge Brook Trail, arriving at Dartmouth College Ravine Lodge, around 750 so this was a long one mm -hmm. yeah for sure yep yeah so you got busy, that busy. kind of a little bit of a walkout on franconia and then you've got the other walkout on osceola and then this was where the real heavy duty stuff was going on right yeah many members were diverted to uh the longer one smart call yeah. hey do you i got a question for you do you on musalaki do you have an opinion on like going up Gorge Brook versus Carriage Road, like doing that route, that loop from the, the lodge? Like, do you, is it, you make a recommendation one way or the other? No, not really. No. So pick them. Yeah. I, I don't have enough uh, exposure to Carriage to know it fully. Um, Gorge versus, say, Beaver Brook, yeah, but Carriage, no. Sorry. I've only I've done like I went up Carriage and then we hit the South Peak first and then went over to um, the main peak and then down. So I've done it like clockwise, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, twice I've done it clockwise. So I don't know. I guess it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, not really sure. Add right. it to the Here's list. One you don't hear. Add it to the list. I'm going to go the other way and see. So here's one you don't hear about a lot. So around four forty-five. On Thursday, September 15th, Fishing Game was notified of a hiker that suffered a lower leg injury while descending Mount Sunapee. I've never thought to hike Mount Sunapee. Um, I think Sunapee so, is on the 500 list. Is it? Yep. Really? Yep. Check that out. So 20-year-old hiker from Revere um, had prepared to go on a solo hike starting from Mountain Road in Newbury, ascending the Andrew Brook Trail to Lake Solitude. So she had made it to the lake, taken a rest uh, before returning in the same trail. She slipped and fell, injured her leg, and she had to call 911. So mm. uh, I guess it was about a little over a mile from the trailhead. So they arrived at the lot around 710. So 445, she called, and she's back at the trailhead by 710. So not horrible. Yeah, not too bad. But you're right. Yep. Interesting location. Yep, 
And then uh, sticking with the southwest part of the state here, we go to Mount Monadnock. We've got a young gentleman from Rhode Island who slipped while descending the White Cross Trail and suffered a lower leg injury. So, um, oh no, actually it's a it's a female, sorry, 21-year-old female. Um, she was unable to make it down to the base without assistance. So they've got a nice ranger station down there in the bottom of the trailhead. So they were able to provide medical assistance and stabilized her injury while awaiting some other rescuers to initiate a carryout. So she was placed in a litter and carried a distance of about a mile and a half to the trailhead to the park headquarters. And um, I guess shout out to Upper Valley Wilderness Response Team, Fish and Game, and the Mountain Patrol Rangers, as well as Jaffrey, New Ipswich, Ringe, and Peterborough Fire Department. So Um, call came in around 345 and they made it out to the trailhead around 815. So you're talking five hours. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then here we go. So during the carry out, a good Samaritan assisting with the rescue also slipped. Um, so, and this sucks. Like you're a good Samaritan and they put your name in the, in the press release. But anyway, 25 year old (laughs) from Boston, Mass suffered an ankle injury. So they had to do a second carry out to bring this person to park headquarters. So overall, approximately 40 rescuers took part in both carryouts. So that must explain why the other one took eight till 8.15. So. Yeah, I don't know the circumstances around this one, but it it, it points to the, the need for training and experience. And that's that's the role of the volunteer search and rescue teams. Uh, I, you know, it could happen to anybody, but for those just jumping on to um, a mission like that, I, I, I would think there's a greater risk of injury just because of the inexperience and whatnot. Yeah. And I would think it's like the same thing about hiking. Like I'll take like my friends that don't go hiking and like they're just not used to sort of navigating on rocks and roots and uphill and downhill and like you do it over and over again and you get that repetition and you don't even think twice about like okay i just have to pick my footing i have to imagine Mm. when you add a litter or you're adding like so foreign multiple people on a narrow trail it's a completely different way of like placing your feet and like it becomes natural the way and when you do it dozens of times but it's not natural for a newbie correct yeah all right, and then our last one here is a hunter injured in a tree stand accident. So this is, why did you put this on here? This well, isn't hiking related. Well, it's, so it's, it's interesting. It's fishing game related. It's in the whites, and it's just an odd story. You just don't hear about these things, so I figured I'd throw it in there. Have you ever yeah, seen no, a tree stand? I have. Matter of fact, like yeah. I run in my local town forest, and... Um, there's a tree, there's like the most illegal tree stand ever, like in our, our Amesbury woods, like there's a guy that has a tree stand, but I'm like, it's, it's on Amesbury's like public property and it's like right on a main trail where people hike. So I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, mm. but I have seen like the tree stands up there. I've never seen the guy on yeah. it, but I'm like, this can't be legal. I've come across several bushwhacking and uh, some of them can be, you know, 15 feet high. I mean, they're up there, but uh, yeah, it's just oh, a little yeah. unusual. It's like uh, Katniss. Yeah. <laughs> Katniss from yeah, ex- exactly. uh, Hunger Games. Exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, but this one happened in Goffstown. So 58-year-old gentleman from Goffstown had been setting up his tree stand in the woods. Um, he began ascending the, uh, the tree stand after securing the lower straps, and the stand shifted and began to fall over. So 
Uh, this guy took a dive from the tree stand and sustained serious but non-life-threatening injuries. So he was able to call a friend who called 911, um, and then Goffstown Police and Fire and Rescue were able to assist the guy out of the woods. So um, Fishing Game would like to remind hunters to always practice safe setup, use, and removal of tree stands. Most tree stand accidents can be avoided by using the buddy system to put up and remove, um, as well as by utilizing a safety harness while hunting. So hmm. who knew? Yeah. Find a buddy. I guess. Yeah. Yep. If, if this was like just building a tree fort, would have been fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I get it. Like some people hunt definitely like for the meat and they, they you know, they want to stack up, store up over the winter. But like for me, like it's got to be the most boring activity ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Patience. Absolute patience. patience. Like I just don't have the patience for it. So kudos to those hunters. Yeah. You ever build a uh, tree fort when you were a kid? Sure did. <laughs> we had a tree fort in my house in North Reading. It's so much fun. Good time. Matter of fact, I was explaining to my kids like one thing that we. I always go on these rants about like when I was growing up, like there's certain things that like we experience that they don't experience now. Like yeah. when I was a kid growing up, there was like packs of wild dogs that were roaming the neighborhood <laughs> off leash. You just had to like avoid those. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It was just like, that was just a fact of life. Like I was a paper boy and you just had to avoid certain dogs and there'd be packs of dogs and you just learned to avoid them. And the same thing with bullies, like every neighborhood had like at least a bunch of bullies right. and like you could get beat up. Um, and then like there was tree houses, but the thing about our tree house, I remember is back in the eighties and I, I'm going to start saying this a lot. Remember when we had gypsy moths? Oh, sure. I, I don't think you're allowed to call them that anymore, but I don't know what they're <laughs> called anymore, but they used to be called gypsy moths. Yep. And, um, we had these infestations. Remember you would put like the tinfoil on, on the trees mm -hmm. to make sure that the gypsy moth, although you live in Lynn, so you might not, this, you may not understand. Um, <laughs> I remember it up north, but, though, when we would go up. Yeah, exactly. So you put the like the tinfoil around trees so the gypsy moss wouldn't climb on it. But we had a tree fort in my backyard that we we built. My father mostly built it, but we, we built it, too. Uh, but it got infested with, like, those gypsy moth, like, uh, webs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't go in it for a while. But, yeah, we would have our, our clubhouse and, and all that. Yeah. It was fun. That's great. Good memories. Yeah. Different time, different Very age, good. but. Yep. Yeah, well, this short show went a little bit long, Snop, so I think we're going to call it a call it a night. Yeah, let's do that. And next week, maybe we'll uh, touch upon shoulder season. We're a little deeper into it, and we'll uh, get it going. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Yeah. Later. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots.